0: Before you start listening to this podcast, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, which will give you full access to everything on our website, and we'll also throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, the Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, Dr Max Pemberton reports from the front lines on how he's seen the NHS transformed by the incoming fight against coronavirus. We also take a punt on how Britain will be changed by this crisis, whether in its domestic policy or in its foreign policy. And also on the podcast, we celebrate children and their imaginations. But first, Dr. Max Pemberton writes the cover piece this week, saying that he's never seen the NHS quite like this. Max, can you tell us about the war footing that the health service has been put on?
1: So, really, since the kind of the, the shifting shift in the gear change that's happened with Boris Johnson announcing that you know really that we've now got to start preparing for widespread infections and we've got to, and the NHS has got to start preparing for that, he almost almost as he was making that announcement, all the NHS trusts declared a major incident which, to be honest, I've never, I've never witnessed a major incident before. I didn't really know what it was. I got the email. And when I then came into work the next day, all the managers were, had been up the whole night implementing this major incident kind of protocol, which really means that the entire service, or certainly our entire trust, all the services within our trust, Had just been entirely reconfigured, and there's been plans put in place to change absolutely everything. So, we were kind of ushered at nine o'clock in the morning, we were ushered into this meeting, all the kind of doctors and a couple of the sort of senior nurses. And we were then told, Right, you know, this is everything is changing from today onwards. Kind of, it's very sort of strict, very clear policy around, you know, kind of making sure that services are realigned, restructured in order to really kind of set ourselves up for for the wave of, of, of COVID positive patients that are predicted to come. So, we kind of almost immediately um, started discharging patients, we were reading through notes, checking for high risk patients, making sure they were identified anybody that wasn't considered high risk they were discharged from the services we were working out ways that we could kind of consolidate some services, move patients around to kind of uh, prep wards kind of changing entire wards, so wards that were maybe kind of community based programs for example, they were trying to clear them out so that they could actually turn them into wards there was a-, a children's service that was closed down and they've now turned it into a new A&E so I mean extraordinary stuff and unbelievable Unbelievably, I mean, I've worked in the NHS for twenty odd years, but usually this stuff would take eons, years and years and years to do. And by four days, within four days, this was all done. And so, on the Friday, I turned up to work. Um, This had all started on the Monday and on the Friday I turned up to work and actually it was just kind of eerily quiet. Everything had been done. It was extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. Mm,
0: And Kieran, you're returning to the front lines, having been elected as a new MP in the last election, which seems like an age ago. How do you feel about the NHS's preparedness?
2: I I mean, I haven't had Max's insight of being in a trust and seeing it happen uh, overnight. I'm due to go in this week and start the process, as I'm sure your listeners will be glad to know. People can't just turn up and start working as a doctor. You have to go through various checks. Uh, but I can certainly say from a, from a government point of view, in terms of that urgency that Max has seen on the front line, you know, we see the same thing happening in government. The Department of Health is just is is moving at speed, really. Crazy amounts of work are being done. We're, we're putting forward changes to rules and guidance and how we expect the NHS to work. That, that would be worked up normally over many months. Lots of consultation and, and changes to those plans. And we're just we're just pushing these things through at, at speed because we have to, really, because actually if we don't do things quickly, there's going to yeah. be patient harm at the other end of it.
0: But here, two of the biggest complaints from medical staff this week has been, first of all, lack of PPE, personal protective equipment, as well as lack of testing for medical staff. Do you think the government is doing enough on those two fronts? Well,
2: I know the government is doing as much as it possibly can. I, I mean, the enough test is is always difficult to meet what you're talking about is is getting a, getting out millions and millions of pieces of PPE equipment to people in a very 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 short space of time so I think you know it's inevitable really that not every single place is going to get it as quickly as we would have wanted it to do Uh, the the military are now helping with that side of things the military in this country have got an amazing ability to organize things and get things done so I know that they're helping with it as I said millions of bits of kit are getting out there and, and many 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 hospitals are getting the kit they need and this week we're focusing also on social care and other places I, I think the government's heard loud and clear that in some places it isn't working they've set up this hotline so that anybody can can call from, from a hospital from a staff member and say actually we don't have the kit we need and as i said i think having the army in there helping them with that will mean that we, we see those kind of issues reduce very quickly over the next few days and, I, and i'll certainly be one of those people that carries on raising it if it still isn't getting everywhere that it needs to be
0: Max, earlier this year, I wrote an article about China's tackling of the coronavirus saying that, you know, it's hard to imagine an overnight hospital being built here. Yet this week, we hear that an overnight hospital will be built, or at least adapted in the Excel Centre in London. How has NHS managed to cut through the red tape just so quickly?
1: I mean, I, to be honest, I've literally, I've never seen this in my life. And I've, I've so many times, I've been sort of, you know, had ideas, and I've kind of gone to meetings and said, you know, guys, why don't we do this? And you just kind of, just this brick wall of, like, bureaucracy and kind of tedium and everyone's like, well, let's bring up the next month's meeting. You think, oh, God. And I, I think part of it is because, well, part of it, I think, is that that. There has been a, a, a very small number. It's part of the kind of major incident policy. It is actually very, very clear that there is a small number of people, most of whom are actually clinicians, who are now entirely responsible. In our particular trust, there was a gold command, a silver command, and then bronze command, which made up a few people, most of whom are clinicians, and that the kind of information is cascaded down and that, you know, in, in sort of series of meetings that last, you know, only half an hour or so. And then, so that really by the early morning, everybody 's been kind of kept up to date, and it 's then the responsibility of the clinicians on the on the ground to then go right, okay, so this is the problem, we just have to do it, and I think partly it 's because there 's been such a clear, very lean kind of a power structure so that actually if I sit and think well I need to close this service but I'm worried about this 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 I just phone up the next person in command who's also conditioned and I say this is what I need to do and I don't know how to do it mm. I've thought about this shall we do it yes or no and they've just gone yes because they know that they have the authority I think part of the problem with the NHS over the years is it's just kind of swollen this sort of middle rank of sort of just Gluttonous kind of managers who just sort of sit there and they don't do, do very much, and it everything seems to like stall when it hits that layer, and they've all just gone, um, they've just been kind of cut out of this uh, of, of this of this major incident policy, and also lots of them have just gone off sick or they're working from home, so suddenly I can literally just knock on someone's door who I know is in charge and just say, okay. I want to do this. Can I just do it? And they go, yes, okay, then. And then I walk out.
0: Do you think those efficiencies are going to stay after this? We really,
1: really hope. this is the thing I found interesting. And again, you know, I don't want to be too enthusiastic about it because firstly, this is actually petrifying, and I genuinely am actually scared. And I've had to nurse patients with with COVID nineteen. It is scary. I'm actually really worried. And I, every day I go into work, and I'm actually quite nervous. So the, I'm not kind of being a Pollyanna about this, since it's not. Uh, there are many awful, tr- horrendous aspects to this, but. The thing I have noticed that's been quite positive is that people, because this sudden environment, it is, it's like a sort of like Californian start-up. Um, but like everyone, it's a real can-do attitude that actually people have just risen up and gone, do you know what, I'll do that, I'll take over. You know, one person that was doing this yesterday, they've gone off sick, I'm going to do it. Mm. And, and suddenly it, it's been this great leveller that there's been nurses stepping up, there's been healthcare assistants stepping up and sort of taking over entire departments. And something I've never seen before. And it really then comes down to people's personalities and kind of, you know, how enthusiastic they are. Have they got this kind of you know, just rolling up their sleeves kind of attitude? And the people that have, they've really risen to the top really quickly. What I hope is that when all this horrible fiasco is over, those people, there will be some that just go back again to their everyday job, but I hope there's some that have felt really empowered and they've been really kind of emboldened by this experience to go, do you know what, I'm actually going to stay in this, in this role. I'm going to stay in a managerial role like this. And, and it's re- to me, it's really kind of allowed people, it's like almost kind of like Darwinian, it's allowed people to really kind of evolve, who perhaps have been held back because they hated all the bureaucracy, they hated all the kind of paper pushing. Suddenly, they're just like, oh my goodness, I can actually get stuff done. I've got the enthusiasm, I've got the motivation and drive, I can just do it. So I really hope it does create a whole sea change for the NHS.
0: And Kieran, after this ends, do you think this is going to be a turning point in terms of the state's relationship with the NHS? Is it going to get more funding? Are we going to, What do you think is going to happen?
2: I think that, you know, most of the major parties and actually most of the developed world governments are really struggling with this challenge of the ever increasing demand on health services. I mean, every developed country in the world has got this ageing population at the same time as we've got this ever increasing access to more and more treatments and technologies, all of which are quite expensive. And how you balance that is is never an easy an easy thing to do i think that probably there'll be a lot of public support for recognizing the long term the nhs needs to be in the best possible place it can be to deal with issues like this i mean let's put it in perspective even the best placed health service in the world cannot cope with out of nowhere a pandemic that's going to potentially put thousands of people in itu that you know you and you cannot staff all year round ITUs on the on the idea that actually there might be a pandemic at some point and you'll need Extra beds. So let's get that perspective on it. But having said that, I think that the more the public get behind services like the NHS, the more it gives political parties the room to put the money in, um, knowing that the public are going to back that and think it's the right thing to do. I personally would always like to see health services and social care in particular given the priority they deserve. And I think the Conservative Party has been on a real journey around that um, over recent years. But you know, I would never complain if it went a bit further.
1: From my perspective. What what I, I think has been interesting is watching this transformation, particularly in my trust, over literally just four days. I did sit there thinking, I you know I'm, I'm often a critic of the government. I'm a critic of the NHS. Often, I did sit there thinking, I do not think that this could happen in any other healthcare system. That you could get this speed, the r- rapidity, the, the kind of this just sudden, sudden top down reorganisation that's happened. I don't think, you know, if, I was trying to imagine like in this in America, for example, even somewhere like Italy, where there's multiple providers, somewhere like France, where there's multiple providers, the, the negotiations that would have to take place. There's no kind of direct kind of avenues of communication from people on the ground directly up to the, the very, very, very top. Whereas the, the one single beauty of the NHS, which is often, I think, historically has often been its failing and frustration, but in this time has been its real strength, is that somebody in Skipton House, you know, in the Department of Health or N- N- NHS England can make a decision. And within hours, I've heard about it and I'm doing it. You know, uh, you know, on the ground. And that, to me, is the beauty of the NHS. It's something I think we've lost historically. You know, I think, I think it's always been there, but we've lost it, and it's got kind of, you know, become sclerotic and slow. But, you know, now we've reminded ourselves, oh, yes, this is the beauty of, the, of a nationalised health service. This is what is kind of amazing about it.
0: Thanks, Max and Kieran. Next. The very popular war analogy used about coronavirus isn't quite right, James Forsyth writes in this week's political column. But what is clear is that, just like the war which introduced the welfare state in Britain, coronavirus has the ability to irrevocably change the face of Britain. So what will this country look like after COVID-19? Katie Bors, our deputy political editor, talks to James Forsyth as well as former Foreign Secretary William Hague James, in the
3: politics column in this week's Spectator, you write that in the past 10 days, we've seen the greatest expansion of state power in British history. Will it be possible to go back to normal?
4: Well, I think what's interesting about this is that you see a huge expansion in state power led by two politicians who are are deeply uncomfortable with it in Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. One of the few constants of Boris Johnson's political and journalistic career has been his railing against the kind of nanny state and the public health police and all that. And yet now he's the prime minister telling people that they can only leave their home for a small number of state-sanctioned activities. Then you've got Rishi Sunak, who's, who's definitely not a kind of big state conservative as chancellor basically ending up with a public purse paying the bulk of the wages of millions of private sector workers. Now these are obviously extraordinary measures but I think one of the things worth remembering is you know Boris Johnson likes to say that you know the UK is at war with COVID-19. Now, it's obviously not an exact parallel, but it is worth remembering one of the things that enabled the Atlee government to introduce the NHS, nationalise industry, create the planning system, was this sense born out of victory in World War Two, that the state was good at running things and that difficult problems should be handed over to the state to solve. If the state manages to deal with this virus rapidly, I think there will be a public sense of, well, why don't we just get the state to fix that? The state can move at speed, the state can sort these problems. And that will obviously make things easier for politicians on the left. Set against that is, I think, the costs of these measures are going to be huge. I mean, you know, national debt is going to be over 100% of GDP by the end of this crisis. And so this assumption we've had that borrowing costs were going to remain low forever might not turn out to be right now. I I think the run on the pound last week was a reminder that even a small deficit can get punished by the markets.
3: William, it can be hard to think past the next couple of weeks in terms of the coronavirus and its immediate effects. But how do you think the virus will change Britain in the long term or could change Britain? Well,
5: I agree with what James was just saying. I I think we have to start with a very big caveat that it's very hard to predict the longer-term political effects of a big change in world affairs. You know, if we think of the end of the Cold War and the universal assumption that liberal democracy was going to triumph everywhere for the long term, well, it didn't work out that way. And so we might find here the optimistic view here is that, yes, this is an enormous increase of state power, exactly as James has been describing, but perhaps this will teach people to value their freedom, and perhaps it will demonstrate to people that it's very difficult for governments to choose which businesses are going to succeed. And that the situation has become so bad economically that you have to have an enterprising, innovative economy for the future. You know, that would be the optimistic reading. But of course, for now, we have this, yes, this huge expansion in the role of the state, and it might encourage some. Pretty dangerous left-wing ideas, you know, that we can print our way out of fiscal difficulties, uh, that we could afford a national basic income, even though that would mean crippling levels of taxation. So there is going to be a new political struggle about this, and I think the parallel with the 1940s is correct. What will it permanently change in British politics? There will be a whole new issue of resilience. You know, that you need a contingency margin in the health service, that governments have to make sure there is a degree of national resilience in terms of the ability to make certain things or supply certain things, given that the first reaction of countries is to close borders in, a, in an international crisis. And a big battleground is going to be surveillance. This is going to be the very difficult bit that's coming up. Because it looks likely that after this initial phase of the crisis, where we have a collective constraint on our freedom, we might have to move to individual constraints. As developing in South Korea now, the the app you have to have on your phone, that you have to report to the government where you are and how you're feeling every day. And uh, they have to be able to see who you've met every day. Well, now that is going to be a very difficult, ethical, philosophical battleground. And if we have to do any of that, we have to make sure we roll it back at the first opportunity.
3: James. Looking at the economy briefly, one of the things you touch on is the idea of the self-employed who in the past have had comparatively favourable tax treatment on the grounds that they in a way take a risk by going down that route. But given that the government is going to have to step in and help them, um, and we expect to get more details soon from Rishi Sunak, do you think their status will change in the future?
4: I think the whole argument for self-employed paying you know, small amounts of national insurance was that they were choosing to take the risk onto themselves. I think what this crisis has shown is that that is simply not sustainable for those at the lower end of the income scale. So I think, I think at the end of this crisis, one of the things you are going to see is an alignment between national insurance rates for the employed and the self-employed. I mean, think there, there will be a view taken that you know, actively encouraging self-employment. Doesn't work if, in a crisis, the state is expected to step in for those workers in exactly the same way that it's expected to step in for workers in you know in traditional full-time employment. I I, I think on William's point about the the changing. Mindset about manufacturing here. I think you know one of the legacies of, of World War Two was a desire for food security. I think one of the big legacies of this crisis is that all countries are going to want medical security. They're going to want the ability to manufacture medical devices, vaccines, and drugs in their own countries. I think on the surveillance point, I think this is where the character of the prime minister matters a lot, actually, because I think I think some of his predecessors would not have been so keen to entirely dismantle this apparatus of social control at the first possible moment. I think his deep discomfort with what he is having to do at the moment means that he is really not going to like the idea of some kind of, you know, everyone in the country having to report their temperature to the NHS every morning. I mean, that, 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 that is so alien to his view of the world. But I think as soon as, this, as soon as this crisis has passed, I think he's going to have little truck with that kind of idea.
3: William, James talks about the Prime Minister's nature and Boris Johnson has received some criticism as the pandemic has drawn out for seeming to be reluctant to bring in a lot of these measures. Do you think the coronavirus is going to change how he is as a leader? He is going to have to get used to doing things that go against his natural political judgment?
5: Well, yes, to some extent. I mean, leaders do all learn as they go along. You know, if, if I think of prime ministers I've worked with, they do change their pattern of behaviour over the years, particularly if they experience a great crisis, they become much more alert and sensitive to how, to how do you head that off and how do you spot the next crisis coming. And so that will change his style of leadership, I think. And James is quite right about how... Boris will be a, a very reluctant Prime Minister to interfere in the, the freedom of the individual, and that's a very good thing that, that he's so reluctant. But of course we might find over the next year, if we get into this testing and tracking of exactly who in the world might have the virus, uh, that... Other countries are saying, well, your citizens can't travel to our country and you can't trade openly with our country unless you are doing this in your country. There's going to be a, quite an interesting divide in the world and it, it might make some countries into a bit of a pariah. So going to, there's still going to be all those external forces and constraints on Boris Johnson. So his determination to keep us free will end up being balanced against those forces. You definitely want a prime minister who wants to keep you free in those circumstances, but it's not going to be as easy as it as it is to talk about it.
3: Let's talk about international relations, which are clearly being tested over the past couple of weeks and will be in the months to come. James, you quote a government figure suggesting the UK will do a lot less trade with China after this. Can you explain this?
4: So, so I think there are two aspects of this. The first is But the desire for supply chain security, the idea that you can make stuff yourself so that in a crisis, you can be relatively self-sufficient in in things like medicine will lead to, to less trade with China. And then I think the second aspect of this is I think there was irritation in government that these Chinese wet markets that were responsible for SARS had been responsible for another disease. And then there was a kind of frustration that the Chinese hadn't been straight with the World Health Organisation about what was going on and all that. I think people pretty much thought that was par for the course. I think what has surprised people is China's use of its diplomatic network in the last week or so to kind of actively spread misinformation about the origins of the virus. And I think that has reminded people of the nature of president xi and you know that, that china is is going backwards in terms of, of liberalization and i was i was very struck by a kind of close ally of the, of the prime minister who had always previously defended the huawei decision to me he said look you know this does show why we need to get that kit out of the network sooner rather than later because this has been a reminder about the nature of a Chinese state, and that it, that, you know, that you can't pretend it is. You can't pretend that it is either just another country, or it is a country on a kind of journey towards being a more responsible international citizen. China is clearly becoming a less responsible global actor, not a more responsible one.
3: William, it wasn't so long ago conservative politicians were talking about a golden era with China, and those days longer.
4: Those days have
5: gone, yes, and um, that was um, excessively effusive language at the time. And what has happened here, uh, the way this virus has arisen, does illustrate the fatal flaws of such an authoritarian system that people were told to suppress it to begin with. Now, China has, however, shown a capacity to respond to international opinion and to reform. I do a lot of work against the illegal wildlife trade and China has turned into a helpful partner on stopping the ivory trade, for instance. Now, part of the test going forward is are they going to permanently ban and really enforce, despite corruption, the kind of uh, wet market in, in which so many animals dead and alive are all lumped together? Now, what we, how we view them in the future will partly depend on things like that. And they have the immense advantage in the world that the United States has withdrawn so much from a role of global leadership. So there they are now, able to be sending aid to European countries. They're very influential in the World Health Organization. They're able to establish their own narrative of what's happening in the world today we have to take seriously this can lead to a more influential China in international relations, but I think it will lead to a diversification of uh, Western companies' global supply chains. I agree with what James just said about Huawei. I think the government is heading for a, a bigger climb down on that anyway, and that this will further reinforce the case for that.
3: And just in terms of geopolitics, briefly, William, if you look at some of the rhetoric coming from America towards China, clearly was always hostile. But do you think we're going to see increased hostility from the West to the East?
5: Well, that's, that's certainly the way at the moment, and you only have to look at the way the Trump administration has characterised the virus, and then the way the Chinese have reacted by expelling US journalists. This is not good. This is a rise of nationalistic attitudes in the world. I would just add that caveat that I made at the beginning again, that it's hard to see months and years in advance because the... You know, that part of the public reaction globally to this crisis could be that it demonstrates the need for international cooperation, that actually we need some new, uh, more stronger structures in in the United Nations to deal with this, that the first instinct of countries should be to work together on producing the medical equipment and and the vaccine rather than compete with each other to control it at the expense of the others. And so... It could be that a lot of public opinion swings round in that direction and and political systems follow it. But at the moment, we are heading for increased nationalism and increased socialism in the world. So this crisis is not good for those of us of a conservative disposition.
3: (laughs) And finally, we touched on all the things that we don't know. And ultimately, as we currently speak, we have no uh, sense yet of what the final death toll will be on coronavirus, how the UK will compare with other countries. But James, there is a risk that one of the most long lasting uh, damaging effects of coronavirus could be a loss of faith in the state. Yes, I
4: think there is a kind of horribly, brutally simple calculation that I think voters will make at the end of this, which is they will look at how the UK has done in comparison to, to other European countries, to the US, and they will judge how effective the UK's response has been, quite frankly, by the death toll in comparison to in those countries. It's quite one of those nightmare moments for a government because you know they can't win the next election in, in the coming weeks, but they can lose it. This is a test. And I think if the UK comes out of this considerably worse than other countries, there will be, I think, people's generally positive view of the state and official advice will change. I think this is going to be something that is going to have a huge domestic political ramifications kind of everywhere around the globe. You know, I think it's completely, for example, changed the context of the US presidential election this autumn.
3: William, do you agree with that?
5: Well, broadly, yes. I think um, people might put a higher premium on competence in government. And I very much hope the the British government will come high up the um, international rankings in that. But yes, there is in the end going to be something of a league table about how governments performed. And having people who can competently handle an unexpected crisis People will value that a bit more because, of course, they're going to be more conscious of what other crisis could happen. You know, could there be a worse pandemic of a more lethal virus? Could there be a a, a world crisis because of the collapse of antibiotic resistance? Could there be a devastating cyber attack? Could there, you know we can the t- we can go down the risk register? Could there be a volcanic eruption in Indonesia like in the 1880s that? You know, that would interrupt a lot of supply chains. People are going to be more conscious of that, at least for the coming years.
0: That was Katie Balls, James Forsyth and William Hague. And last, if your parents stuck at home worried about what to do with your children, Mary Wakefield's column in this week's issue may give you some hope. She reminisces to a playgroup she took her son to last summer where there were no props, no toys, no costumes, only the children and their imagination. So how are children quite so good at make-believe? Mary joins me down the line now, together with Piers Torday, author of much-loved children's books such as The Last Wild. Mary, your column this week is a rather optimistic one for parents stuck with their children at home all over the country. Can you tell us about Lottie's magic box? Well, I'm not sure it's
6: optimistic for parents who don't have Lottie's acting skills, but it was just a piece about basically how much children can engage in make-believe and for how long and it turns out they don't really need all these accessories and props and toys that we surround them with this was an event i went to in which a woman just led about 20 children through a game of make-believe for about an hour on a bit of floor the size of a bath mat really and they were all totally happy and engaged and it just struck me that without all the usual props you can see how children can enter into this imaginative world which we all know is there but i didn't realize the extent of it on how engaging it can be for them. So in these days of lockdown, I was kind of cheered to think that perhaps if we just let children start playing their own games
0: and using their own imaginations, it might not be as bad as all that. And what's incredible about your piece is that you were saying your son back then was only three and the other children were very young as well. So it always seemed instinctive. I completely felt like that. I mean... Well, with absolute ease and joy following
6: the instructions of this lady to imagine themselves in a circus, in a swimming pool with imaginary enemies, putting on imaginary clothes, you know, in, there was absolutely no kind of, you know, coloured lights and costumes, you know, we all feel we have to get fancy dress costumes on the time
0: help our children imagine. Without all that stuff, they felt actually freer to play, more creative. And Piers, how important is imagination to your bread and butter work?
7: Uh, Well, imagination is literally my bread and butter work. (laughs) And if anything, what I'm trying to do is access that childlike simplicity of imagination. I think children are born with a kind of innate simplicity in their grasp of the world it's incredibly literal so if you say you're looking for a lion called arthur they accept you actually
6: are yeah 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 what's funny about that is you can break the rules of fantasy and then they then they absolutely turn on you yeah Yeah. they can do almost anything imaginatively as long as you don't suddenly say oh it's a monkey or you know you don't sort of break the kind of um, narrative strain you threads you've created in which case you, you know, you're absolutely toast. And I'm sure that's,
7: is, Piers, is that
6: true of, writing a, it, sure it, it's
7: true of writing fiction as well? Children children are natural world builders, it's what they do. They have a sort of uh, internal logic that applies. We, I'm sure we all remember the games we, or maybe it's just me, yeah. but the games we played as children with our toys and the logic, the yeah. relationships, and they were very clear to us, if not maybe to our parents. And what children don't really enjoy is complex fantasy so worlds within worlds sort of what we would call high fantasy sort of game of thrones stuff um not not just because the violence and the sex but actually because the kind of interplay is very complicated they don't like metafiction that's not a concept for them yeah they don't want uh, to
6: be clever or postmodern or ironical about
7: that no and I, i think what's amazing about children is they can always tell when they're being deceived I used to work in television, and I worked with the uh, uh, Hollywood prosthetics artist who did those kind of amazing transformations of people's faces, uh, and it was super convincing and latex and all sorts. And I said, is there anyone this doesn't work on? And he said, children. And grown-ups, if they see someone in prosthetics, tend to be polite and think maybe the person's had an accident or has had surgery and they should be careful. But children straight away say, why are you wearing something funny on your head? Which yeah. <laughs> is is the truth,
0: and Piers, I mean, a lot of parents worry. I think that in the world of Netflix and video games, children are not often bored enough to have that sort of propless existence. How how much of a factor is boredom in all of this?
7: Well, one one thing I always when I speak to children in schools, obviously the question you get asked, one of the questions you get asked the most, apart from how much money you do make and having met J.K. Rowling, is where do you get your ideas from, and I explain to them that I obviously I wish there was a shop or a website I could download ideas from but honestly the best way to have an idea is to stare out of the window uh, not stare at a screen but to stare out of the window until you were bored because I actually think the imagination only functions under certain conditions and boredom is one of them. We generate ideas to entertain ourselves because we're bored. Um, I remember as a child having great ideas on long car journeys Uh, waiting you know always waiting for your parent waiting for something to happen waiting for someone to arrive waiting for a lesson to begin that's when you have your ideas because your brain is kind of idle um if we distract ourselves all the time it's actually quite hard to have that space to have ideas
6: what you said earlier about children being natural kind of world builders is is really important here they do have this ease with it just as they have an ease with their own bodies and an ease about painting and you know and you know, in the modern world, we rush in too quickly to fill boredom, don't we? I mean, it's so easy to do that. You just give them your phone, and I'm certainly guilty of it. You know, you're anxious because you're working as well as parenting. You see your child bored. They complain. You give them something, a bit of plastic to fill the gap. But if we fill all the gaps, they never get to that stage where they're doing that, you know, really blissful make believe, and which uh, which feels so good for your brain.
7: And it is that sense of bliss, and I think that's. The other really important quality that you're trying to aim for is that when you're really lost in a world of play or imagination it's that ability to somehow freeze time but yet also enable time to pass effortlessly, so that hour you spent the lottie kind of just flew flew by and I've been really struck i've been doing the confinement I've been sharing some little exercises for people at home and they're really simple, just choosing objects in your room to make a story about opening a book at random and using the words to make a story. And I'm really struck that I think one of our burdens as adults, and especially I'm talking about parents and educators now, is that we know so much about childhood development and education and learning and imagination, which is hugely useful in all sorts of ways. But sometimes we do run the risk of overcomplicating things. And just if we allowed children... And I think it's so important at this time when everyone is. And it's easy for me to say I haven't got any, but I, I do think if we just allow children to make stories up with what they have, the world around them, and yeah. just give them the space to do that, you'd be surprised. Yeah. I, I, if we always try and fill every minute with activity, and learning, mm. and distraction, that they won't.
6: Yeah, and and it is a joy that you know that ability. It's like it is like you know it's the ease with which you see a bird flying or a dog running. It's that mm. kind of. They have a a joy in it.
0: Mary, what's particularly interesting about your piece as well is that you say some cultures don't encourage imagination and, in fact, see us... Yes, I I mean, I think think they're onto something there. I mean, I'm much more
6: more sympathetic to the idea that make-believe is somehow spooky and demonic than I am the idea that, oh, it's all just practice for being an adult. You know, it's such a simplistic explanation to say, oh, you're just practicing, you know, so you can kind of make tea when you're older or something like that or you're just I, like what do you think hang on oh, here's my son <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you like what do you like pretending my gems your gems pretending treasures. there you go that's a bit of input from the horse's mouth there
0: <laughs> Mary that anticipates my next question which is how has working at home been for you with um.
6: <laughs> it's been like that <laughs> yeah but you know we are I'm, I'm trying to let go of it and we're trying to play with more of our imaginations and things like that, but it's obviously hard because that requires mental focus from both of us, you know, being in the moment. It's actually very hard to do any other work at the same time. You cannot multitask and create, you know, mentally, can you?
0: Yeah. Thank you, Piers and Mary. And that's it for this week. If you enjoy this podcast, why not pick up the issue to read all of the pieces discussed as well as more from Tanya Gold, Matt Ridley and cartoonist Nick Newman. And if you normally pick up the magazine through a family member or a friend, and you can no longer do that because you're isolating at home, do tune in to Spectator Radio, where we'll be getting some of our favourite columnists to read out their pieces from the magazine each week so that you can still get your fill. You'll find the first episode on Saturday with contributions from Douglas Murray, Tanya Gold and Mark Mason. Just search for Spectator Radio wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, stay safe and join us again next week.